When the road has been long and the days left you weary, may you never discover your husband, Mary Leary. and welcome to Sex and Whiskey. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media, and we're here today to talk about First Wife, the eighth episode of season three. First Wife aired on November 5th, 2017, and was written by newcomer Joy Blake and directed by Jennifer Getzinger. I'd like to take a quick moment to say how much I appreciate that Outlander has packed both its writing and directing bench with women. For a story that was originally written by a woman, in which the main character is a woman, and for which the bulk of the audience is women, I think this is a good thing. The problem with diversity in Hollywood has been that while there's been an external effort to get more women and people of color on the screen, the public-facing side of production, there hasn't been quite as much of an effort to get diverse representation above the line. The the above-the-line people are the ones making the creative decisions, the ones telling the stories. We have been seeing more diversity in these rooms, but not nearly enough. There might be a couple of women and then maybe one person of color or one LGBTQ person on a creative staff, and that one person then has to be responsible for answering questions about every underrepresented group, which is an impossible and unfair task. What happens then is that our mass media, high-level cultural stories are predominantly filtered through a white straight, cisgendered male perspective, and the result is hollow representations and stereotypes of characters that are not white, straight, cisgendered, and male. White women get the best treatment out of the underrepresented groups because these men are often married to white women, fathers of white women, sons of white women. But even that hasn't prevented rampant misogyny in these stories. So I'm taking a moment here to recognize the effort being made on the part of Outlander from the beginning to get talented women working above the line. We started out with Anne Kenny and Tony Graffia as writers and Anna Forster in the director's chair. Season two, we didn't have a single female director, and it was still just Anne and Tony on the writing staff. Although between those two and Diana Gabaldon, we had women writing on seven of the 13 episodes. This season, out of 13 episodes, we have three female directors at the helm for six of the episodes, and five female writers either writing or contributing to eight of those episodes. People of color, LGBTQ, disabled people, I'm not forgetting you, but I want to appreciate what I do see happening. And I think when we factor in all of our mass media, things are getting better all around. Not perfect, not yet, but definitely better. It'll be perfect when we don't have to gratefully acknowledge a situation that should have been that way all along. When we can take for granted that the creative positions in our mass culture are fully representative of that mass culture. For now, I'm giving the cookie and the encouragement. All right, let's go through the stones. In First Wife, Claire, Jamie, and young Ian arrive at Lallybrock to a predictably cold welcome from Jenny and Ian. You had me warning talk today. After a tense reunion, Claire and Jamie retreat upstairs to talk and are interrupted by plot devices one and two. Daddy. Daddy, who is that woman? Claire discovers that Jamie is married to Leary of all people and is understandably upset. It's Leary. She she tried to have me killed. As Claire reels from the news, she discovers that Jenny sent Janet to tell Leary that Claire was here. And Claire confronts Jenny, who kind of has a point. Family writes letters 
tailing one another that are alive. As Claire is on her way out to, well, somewhere, I guess, Jamie stops her in the Lallybrock courtyard, and they just start to make some progress when Leary comes in with a gun and accidentally shoots Jamie. Claire takes care of Jamie's wounds, they talk some more, and then Ned Gowan arrives to give them the good and bad news. The marriage to Leary can be annulled, but Leary wants a hell of a golden parachute. 20 pounds. That's two years' wages. Jamie, Claire, and young Ian make their way to Selkie Island to retrieve the treasure Jamie found there when he escaped from Ardsmere Prison. But while on the island, young Ian is captured by pirates as Claire and Jamie watch, helpless to do anything. There's been a fair amount of dissatisfaction in the Outlander fandom at the lack of happiness, warmth, and affection between Jamie and Claire, and I get it. People want to see their dynamic duo happy now that they've suffered through so much just to be together again. The problem with that is that stories about happy people are boring. Stories are a series of events with meaning, and meaning comes from change. Happy people don't change things. They are content, so they try to maintain the status quo. Change comes from conflict, challenges, and problems. In addition to that, a story about two people united after 20 years apart with no problems to face as a result of that separation isn't going to be narratively satisfying. So I will say that problems between Jamie and Claire here are a good thing. They need to earn their reunion. They need to heal from the damage that being separated did to them. And they have to go through that in order to be the tight team of two that we've come to know and love. Love like that isn't just granted, it's earned. This is why I loved Dark Jamie so much last week. His experiences had changed him, twisted him. And while at his core he's still Jamie, he has real damage he has to work through to find his way back to himself and to Claire. It has to be earned, and last week I thought that was where we were going. It still might be, but I don't know. I don't feel as confident this week. I think we might just have asshole Jamie. Now, let me briefly explain the difference between Dark Jamie and asshole Jamie. Dark Jamie is a good man who's been pulled into darkness by circumstance, who has embraced that darkness for self-protection, and who holds onto it deliberately still, because releasing it means facing the very pain he was trying to protect himself from. To take a character dark means that you're deliberately walking him through that process for the purpose of the narrative, and he doesn't come back until he's earned his way back, thus leading to a narrative that is satisfying, that says something. Asshole Jamie is just an asshole because it serves the plot movement, and as soon as that plot movement is served, we'll bounce him right back into regular Jamie as though nothing ever really happened. No earning, no meaning, no narrative satisfaction. Based on last week's episode, the way they were making Jamie so dark in addition to what the basic plot required made it seem like there was a purpose to it. This week? I don't know. There's so much insanity going on that it's hard to tell, and the episode itself isn't very good. Although, it is a slight improvement on the source material, so at least there's that. I'm sorry, Claire, truly. Claire is coming out a bit better in this episode than Jamie does. She reacts reasonably to the situation. She understands Jenny's reservations about her and wants to tell her the truth. It is Jamie who stops her. I don't know where she thinks she's going when she's packing her things and leaving Jamie at Lallybrock, but I understand the impulse. She came back to a man who wasn't there anymore, and honestly, I probably would have hot-footed it back to Craig Nadun if I were her too, except for the fact that you apparently can't swing a dead cat in 18th century Scotland without hitting three potential rapists, one of which is her husband. But having seen you again, I would do far worse than lie. 
to keep you. Claire is understanding with Jenny, understandably furious with Jamie, and she doesn't back down. I love that about her. Once again, Jamie tries to blame her for what happened, which definitely speaks to his darkness. So while I absolutely hate it, I also absolutely love it. But Claire won't have it. She defends herself and she does not accept his bullshit narrative. And later, after Jamie gets shot and is in serious peril, she jumps into crisis Claire mode and takes care of business, tending to his wounds and stitching him up as an impressed and impressive young Ian assists as a surgical nurse who knows what's truly important. Auntie. Here's enough alcohol for now, thank you. It's not for Uncle Jamie. It's for you, Auntie. While this episode moves through a lot of this very bad source material with kind of a lead foot, employing awkward flashbacks and almost criminally cardboarding Leary, more on that in a minute, the scenes with Jenny are brilliantly done, and once again, my love for Laura Donnelly is fully justified. Now you're back no more than a week and you've killed a man. His print shop's raised to the ground. He's on the run from the law. I suppose that's all my doing. Well, there's no denying trouble finds my brother, but you didn't help matters much. Both Jenny and Ian are wonderfully portrayed in this episode, and honestly, I am completely on their side in all of it. I understand both Jenny and Ian's anger toward Claire for not at least writing a letter. And while I know why Claire didn't, they don't. And without that knowledge, they're absolutely right to be upset. It wasn't just Jamie who loved Claire and grieved for her. But even with that acknowledged, it's lovely Ian who can see the big picture and can show it to Jenny. You're the only one being foolish. If there's a pot of shite on to boil, you stir like it's God's work. This is my fault then. Do you forget I hear your prayers every night? You know, all you ask for is Jamie's happiness after all the sorrows he's seen. And here he is. But you can't let him have it. Most of all, what I love about Jenny is how damn smart she is. She knows there's something wrong with that story, and she doesn't even pretend to accept it. I sat in these very steps watching this very road with Claire when you were taken by the Redcoats. When you didn't come home, we rode together to find you. The Claire I Kent would never have stopped looking for you. But even so, when she sits on the steps with Claire and talks, she's classic Jenny. Tough, smart, and fair. We didn't know your people or your place. Even when Jamie told me you might tell me things that might not make any sense, I didn't question it. You said plant potatoes, I did as told. The crop kept us alive for more than one winter after Culloden. You saved us, and I never asked you about any of it, did I? Jamie chose you. That was enough. Okay, we're here now, so let's have this out once and for all. There is a passionate Leary hate out there in the fandom, and with good reason. In the books, she is full-on crazy bitch, but that also makes her a flat, uninteresting, cardboard stand-up of a character. It seemed like in the TV show we were going to do something more interesting and nuanced with her. Then, well, this happened. Have you no shame, you adulterous bitch? Go back to the hell you came from! Let me go! Let the English cunt stand up for herself! And then, this happened. You and I haven't dwelt in the same house for many a month. Maybe it was the perfect. But you were mine. If not under my roof, you provided for me. I <laughs> Look, 
She shot him in the book, and it's his injuries that push Claire into crisis Claire mode and keep her from leaving, so okay, you want to use that? You can use it. But you can't just slap Leary in there as some insane plot device. You've been building this up since season one. Pay it off, at least a little. You have to make it believable and interesting. Well, you have to do that if you want it to be good. But this? This? In all of Outlander, through all the improbable things we've lived through in both the TV show and the books, this moment is the absolute creakiest piece of hold-your-nose-and-just-write-it storytelling I have yet seen. You ever walk through an old house, step on a creaky, soft floorboard, and think, well, that can't be good? This is what happens when you step on that floorboard and you plummet through the floor to the story below. Yeah, sure, you were on your way to the stairs anyway, and the fall got you to the lower floor so much faster, but not without severe consequence. It was an efficient way to get you where you were going anyway. It's just not, you know, good. I'm not saying that we need to make Leary a good person, but she is nothing more than a creaky plot device delivering the viewer from one place to another in the most insane way possible. And what the hell was she even doing? She charges in with a gun to kill Claire? Did she think that would keep Jamie? Sure, crime of passion, blah, 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 she's just crazy, whatever. That may be a reason why these things happen in real life, but fiction is not real life. It's not supposed to be real life. It's supposed to reflect real life in a way that makes sense, where we can follow a character from one place to another, and we can believe what's happening. Believable is the goal, not realistic. Real life is insane and complicated, and you can't follow it, and things happen that make absolutely no sense at all. We turn to fiction to take that hot mess and make it comprehensible. So the excuse, well, that's how it happens in real life, is not an excuse that works for fiction. Because the purpose of fiction is to make sense of real life, not reflect it back at us. So given the time constraints, how could you make this better? Let me see if I can do it without changing the scenes she's in or making them longer. It'll be a challenge, but let's just see what could have been done. For one, you stay with TV Leary, who is more complicated and cunning than Leary in the book. Crazy, wild-haired, screaming Leary is not what you want. You want quiet, dead-eyed, dangerous Leary. So when she charges into the room after her daughters, she should just collect them and send them out. Then we have her staring down Claire, saying, I thought you were dead. And then she gives Jamie a cold look and walks out. Later, in the courtyard, she walks in with the gun and turns it on herself, telling Jamie he's going to have to watch her kill herself. That is his punishment. It's cold. It's calculating. Claire tries to talk to her, tries to get her not to do it. And this is how we hear Larry's story. She tells the story about how she loved Jamie her whole life, and when she finally got him, he wasn't whole. Maybe she tells some dark Jamie stories that reflect Claire's recent experiences with him. He lied to her. He kept her in the dark. He left her and made her think it was her fault. Dark Jamie, y'all. Claire will feel bad for Leary, try to talk her down, move closer, and when she does, Leary will suddenly turn the gun on Claire. In the instant it takes for the gun to go off, Jamie has pushed Claire out of the way and takes the bullet for her. And there you go. All the plot points met with a more calculating and interesting and dramatically less wild-eyed and batshit crazy Leary. Now, as I say this, please understand. I know what these writers are up against, and it isn't easy. The vast majority of the adaptive changes, including having a see Leary shoot Jamie rather than having it happen off-screen like in the book, have been really good choices. It's just the execution where it fell a little short. And I know that if I was on the writing staff, I'd be struggling with this material too. 
It's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback on these things. It's a lot harder to wrestle this insane source material into something that makes sense. And most of the time, they've been able to do that pretty well. Every now and again, though, they fumble the ball. It happens. <gasps> Jimmy! <gasps> Get away from him! <laughs> Before we finish up here today, I want to address two characters who weren't in the episode very much, but what we got was fantastic. First is young Ian. In the book, young Ian is younger, less competent, less sure of himself, and more of a plot device than a real fleshed-out character. This has been wonderfully set right by the show so far, and John Bell is playing the character with the right mix of naivete and worldliness to make him work so well in the story space carved out for him. He holds his own with his parents without being bratty. He co-pilots for Claire during surgery with just the right mixture of awe and fear. And he volunteers to go and fetch the treasure for Jamie and Claire on their way to France, his hunger for adventure in his eyes. Hi, I could swim that. I'm a better swimmer than either of my brothers. Next on our list of greatest first wife hits is Ned Gowan, the 18th century's answer to Saul Goodman, played by the charming Bill Patterson. Ned Gowan is a character who has served up a plot point or two on many occasions, but he's always written with texture and depth and is always a joy to behold. Pardon me, I'm... I'm a trifle overcome. You look exactly the same. What is your secret? <laughs> I never married. Now, as I've been talking about for a while, we're moving into a different kind of story with Outlander at this point. We're done with the epic romance, and now we're moving into the wild series of adventures. And without spoiling, I'm just going to say, adjust your expectations to that right now. All right, that'll do it for today. Join me Sunday, November 12th at 8 p.m. Eastern using the hashtag SawChip for a live tweet of the broadcast on Stars, And I'll see you right afterward with my thoughts on Season 3, Episode 9, The Doldrums. Slange bye. Sex and Whiskey is a chipperish media production and is entirely funded by passionate story lovers like you. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you can become a chipperish media supporter.